a special presentation of 1837, The Farmer's Revolt, a panel discussion. Welcome back to the Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. I am, of course, your host, Michael Cruz, and this time, another special presentation about Canadian theatre history, a panel discussion from Blythe, Ontario, about 1837, the Farmer's Revolt. Yes, we once again return to my happy place, Blythe, Ontario, where, on July 18th, 2018, Blythe Artistic Director Gil Garrett and local historian David Yates sat down with moderator Christopher Spallata to talk about the history of the current production of Blythe Festival's 1837, The Farmer's Revolt. This is more of a discussion about the history surrounding the play and the circumstances in the 19th century uh, in southwestern Ontario than the actual production of Blythe, but it's a great discussion nonetheless. Think of it as a palate cleanser before we start up with new interviews with Canadian theatre designers in September. And a special thanks to Beth Cates, who recorded this discussion and managed all the permissions down in Blythe. Once again, I want to encourage you to go to patreon.com to support the title block to help cover the costs of producing special presentations like this, and I want to thank those of you who support the show every month. If you have any comments about the show, please forward them to the title block at gmail.com or contact us through Facebook or Twitter. I'd love to hear from you. And now we join Christopher, Gill, and David as they delve into 19th century Canadian history of 1837, The Farmer's Revolt. Welcome to the museum on this sunny, hot evening in Godrich. Thank you all so much for coming tonight. Uh, tonight we have a discussion panel about uh, the new upcoming play at the Blythe Festival, eight, uh, Farmer's Revolt, 1837. Uh, it deals with a rebellion that happened in Ontario at the time called Upper Canada. With us tonight, we have the artistic director of the Blythe Festival, Gil Garrett. Gil is not only the artistic director, he is also an actor and director in his own right, and uh, a winner of this year's Huron Arts and Heritage Network Individual Artist Award. With him on stage, we have David Yates. David Yates is a recently retired teacher. He is a local historian. <laughs> we can give him a round of applause. He's a historian, and he has been writing articles about our local history in the Signal Star for over a decade now. So we're very happy to have him with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Christopher Spalletta. I'm going to be the moderator for this evening's discussion. I'm going to be asking some questions of our panelists, and at any time, if you feel that you would like to ask a question of the panelists, don't hesitate. You can put up your hand, and uh, we can try to get your questions in as soon as possible, rather than holding questions for the end so that we can have this be interactive. So feel free to chime in. 
Uh, I hope that's all right with our guests. Yeah, or if yeah. you have a better answer. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You know, more of a comment than a question. You know? <laughs> that too. Yeah. Um, so without uh, any further ado, I think we'll jump right into it. So first off, I'd like to ask, what was the rebellion of 1837? Can you put it in historical context for us? Okay, well, I'm going to let you go first. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, from a historical perspective, it is an incredibly important event in Upper Canadian history. Um, what it was about was a variety of reasons. No doubt the grievances that the rebels and the reformers had were legitimate, like the cronyism, the jobbery, the corruption of the family compact, the clergy reserves were all legitimate grievances. But at what came to armed rebellion, the rebellion itself had very little popular support. Um, and we'll look at that maybe in more detail later. But overall, it was a uh, sort of a fight for responsible government, but on a deeper, maybe some would say, uh, the Tories would say darker motivation, it was about making Canada a republic, okay? Which republicanism in that decade in the 1830s, remember their frame of reference. The War of 1812 was 20, uh, had, had just ended a little more than 20 years later. The French Revolution, uh, republicanism to people living in Upper Canada in the 1820s and 30s and 40s and maybe up to, they associate it with the French Revolution, the Reign of Terror, and the specter of the guillotine was in the back of everybody's mind. So when you have people like William Lyon Mackenzie supporting a republican style of government, people at the time bridled, even people who were legitimate reformers who were prepared to fight against, uh, maybe not with an armed rebellion, but to, um, to protest against the government's corruption, even people like that would not would have stopped short of um, advocating a Republican form of government. I suspect had the rebellion have worked or had it succeeded, today we'd be celebrating 180 years of American liberty under President Trump, which for a lot of people might not be the ideal situation. But uh, probably at the time in 1837, 38, a lot of the re rebels themselves were probably... Um, mixed in their motives of why they took up arms against the state. Some actually, rather than wanting to overthrow British tyranny, actually were demanding their rights as British citizens of responsible government, parliamentary democracy. Others, as I said, like William Lyon Mackenzie himself and Dr. Charles Duncombe from around the London area, they were outright Republicans. And they would have been quite happy had Canada been annexed to the United States. So can, can you tell us what actually happened on the the day or few days of this rebellion? Maybe Gil? Well, I, I, I want to bring a question back to David there too. Um, so when you say that, uh, that the rebellion did not have a lot of popular support, do you mean in terms of the number of people engaged? No, it didn't have a lot of popular support the number of people who were willing to take up arms against the state. I think the reform like, movement, yeah. like, like you have to divide it up between reformers. The great Edgerton Ryerson, the founder of public education, and Robert Baldwin were reformers who fought the family compact, who were um, um, advocates of, like I said, public education and political reform. But when it came to taking up arms against the crown, they were right out of it. And remember, treason in that day and age, which is what when the rebels took up arms, uh, that's what they were committing. That was the highest crime you can commit. It was a more serious offense than murder. In fact, in the Criminal Code of Canada, 
the death penalty for treason wasn't repealed until 1997, 20 or 20-odd 20 years after it had been repealed for first-degree murder. Actually, yeah. before, before we go on with that, why don't we back up a minute? And I, I assume that there are a lot of people who are interested in history here, but there might be some who, who don't know what the family compact was, what, what situation people were living in at that time. Could you describe that for us briefly? <laughs> uh, in a nutshell, in a nutshell, the, the, well, I mean, the, the family compact were essentially uh, all of the top tiers of government in Upper Canada at that time were essentially uh, either blood relations or were related by marriage. And it was essentially um, uh, a series of little fiefdoms that were controlled by um, uh, these intimate family relations and they were and there were tremendous abuses of power I mean they, they would appoint their own brothers and their own brothers-in-law um, to incredible positions of their own sons and give them multiple positions within the government too so that you could have uh, individuals who were in power who might be uh, you know uh, in charge of uh, um, I mean everything from ju the judiciary the to to every major uh, body that was governing the people of the day and it was it was it, literally all blood relations the and, family compact and how did they get into that situation were they appointed were they elected well I mean if you could call them elections uh, well actually the family compact goes back to the the sort of the aristocrat and the go back to the American Revolution once again and the, the waves of loyalists that came into Upper Canada from the United States, a lot of them um, uh, were upper middle class to begin with, and they and part of it has to do with our idea of what governance was. Remember, Ontario was a counter-revolutionary state. Does anyone know what the provincial motto is? Anyone? <laughs> oh, loyal she began, loyal she remains. And right from the beginning in the 1790s, when the last loyalist migrations entered the province, a lot of families established themselves. They wanted to, they saw themselves as setting up a counter-revolutionary state against what was happening in the United States. And pretty soon, a small knot of families rose to the top and tried to emulate, and some, some would say, like the British gentry or aristocracy, and they felt entitled because they took on, a lot of them were really well-educated, the talent ranged in the early days from really, really sharp and competent, like Bishop John Strawn, sharp, competent, uh, on-the-ball guy, to outright corrupt buffoonery, basically, at the highest levels. And by the 1830s, it got to the point where it couldn't be ignored anymore. It was the dead hand of reform on anything happening in Upper Canada. Hmm. So, so now, at, at the time that there was this wave of loyalists moving in, um, how, how many people were coming up from the United States into Ontario compared to people already living there having emigrated from England? I mean, the, the really, at that point in time, uh, there was a massive out-migration. Like, a lot of people were leaving Upper Canada for the United States, oh. too. I mean, it was happening in droves. Um, you know, uh, like, the, at that time, they talk about... Um, America receiving as much as 2,000 immigrants a day, and the bulk of them would be coming from Upper Canada. Really? 
Okay. Yeah, um, okay. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say, uh, amazingly, America practiced unrestricted immigration. That was something they encouraged yeah. in the first half of the 19th century. They didn't take care of who, uh, where you were from. And um, in Upper Canada, as I said, some of them were really, going back to who these people were, I want to just pick up on John Strawn. He becomes, for a lot of them, they just, their families had distinguished themselves in the War of 1812 and felt that their defense of Upper Canada entitled them to govern. Governors from England come and go, but the family compact or the Chateau clique in Lower Canada, it stuck around and they felt that they had a vested interest. Bishop John Strawn was a gutsy guy. He rode while the Americans invaded York in Upper Canada in 1813 and they burned the Parliament buildings and they were running around with torches uh, burning Young Street and down on what's Front Street now, what was left of uh, York, he rode into the midst of the, uh, the invading army and demanded to know what was going on and demanded that they douse their torches because these were civilian homes. And amazingly, they listened to him. That moment for a lot of people in Upper Canada, even if they didn't like the family compact that developed 25 years later, will point to that moment that John Strawn rode down Young Street and into the uh, advancing Americans and got them to stop doing what they were doing. So some of them were really competent, but as I said, some were really corrupt. And as um, uh, Gill has alluded to, they were driving people out of Upper Canada in droves. The Loyalist migration had probably ended by about 17, the early 1790s. About It's hard to know for sure, but about 40,000 Loyalists came up from the United States and settled in Upper Canada, mostly in eastern Ontario, around St. Thomas. But um, by, that, by the 1830s, that Loyalist migration had kind of gone the other way, and a lot of migrants coming into Canada we're realizing this wasn't nearly, a, the, the development in Upper Canada wasn't happening as nearly as quickly as it was in the United States, in the excited states of America, where you get frontier expansion, industrialism by the 1830s and 40s. Uh, everything was happening in the United States even then, whereas Upper Canada was seemed to be the family compact that maybe turned it into a backwater, um, not very progressive backwater kind of colony of Great Britain. Yeah, and not only politically, but also, I mean, just in terms of sheer infrastructure, too. Like, one, there's a great scene in the play, actually, where, um, uh, and I won't give it all away, but a, a young Canadian uh, goes on a fact-finding mission in the United States. And one of the things that, that he's struck by is uh, the difference between the, the Welland Canal and the Erie Canal. And he basically points to, you know, the Welland Canal at that point has taken them 12 years to build, and it's 12 miles long. Whereas the Erie Canal at that point, and that you have to still dig yourself through it, and that the Erie Canal at that point is 500 miles long and clear sailing right through, and really pointing out, you know, these, these incredible differences. But in you know, people grappling, especially in this part of the world, with having no roads, uh, having uh, uh, sometimes roads that went to the edges of, of watersheds and no bridges. I mean, the, and these these essential pieces of how do you actually develop a. a a civilization. How do you develop a, um, uh, any kind of a city if that's the if that's what you're grappling with? I mean, the towns were really isolated in so many ways, and even isolated not only from each other, but even the people living in the country were isolated so badly from the towns themselves, even the towns that they surrounded. Yeah, so, and as much and as much as the Huron Road was a tremendous accomplishment that the Van Egmonds uh, had built about 1828, 29, to uh, bring uh, immigrants into the Huron Tract, it was little more than a goat track that was barely passable on a good day. And when it was rainy, it was just uh, a, a muddy morass that you couldn't 
you'd sank your ox cart up to the axles and it was more of a problem than a passage far easier to get into the Huron track by the harbor here than it was overland by the Huron Road. So so at the time of this rebellion, we had this family compact who had been kind of dictating what happened in Upper Canada, present-day Ontario. They had been kind of dictating that for years, and people were getting fed up with that and thought that it might be a better idea to start their own country. Like... Yeah, and the reform movement, too, had also been, uh, like, the, I mean, and David's pointed to that, too. There were these um, stalwart uh, uh, reformers who, who tried to, um, you know, what's that Leonard Cohen line? Uh, they sentenced me to 30 years of boredom for trying to change the system from the inside, right? So there was a lot of reformers who went and, and tried to actually sit in Parliament of the day and tried to make change from the inside and, and uh, felt themselves totally isolated and totally shut out. And there's a lot of stuff that um, William Lyon, Mackenzie writes about um, you know the, the number of bills that he tried to put forward and that every time he would present a bill uh, a Tory would call for a recess and the government would be shut down essentially and that he couldn't he could never uh, or felt that he could never forward any of the cause uh, in in the halls of power and and was also himself thrown out of government four times but re-elected you know, again and again and again, because the, the people wanted uh, his voice at the table, but the table was not had no ears. Uh, yes, yeah, a question about were the people in family compact elected or appointed? What was the answer to that? Well, okay. it, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay, a lot of them, the governor, and you see, within the family compact itself, there are a lot of divisions amongst family. A new governor comes in and his term is at the pleasure of his majesty or her majesty, and they appoint the executive council. Like uh, There is a legislative assembly which is elected by popular vote, but it, you had to be to be an elector. The elections here are very small. I think the first election we had in 1835, there are fewer than 200 much fewer than 200 people who were eligible to vote. And you had to go and declare your vote uh, publicly, and you had to be a freeholder. You had to own your own property, not be indebted to somebody else. A British subject, male, 21. And that was as good as it got anywhere. Even the United States, it's pretty much the same. But that was considered... Uh, and, and the people that went to the Legislative Assembly, that and, and some Tories, like Captain Robert Dunlop, who is... Well, he called himself a British constitutionalist. He's frustrated because he wants to bring in prison reform. He wants to bring in immigration. One of his pet causes, which is why he shows up in the modern age very well, was uh, bringing in the runaway slaves, what he called the freedmen or contraband. And because he saw the runaway slaves uh, that came to places like when Bedolph Township was in Huron County, we had a settlement called Wilberforce, which William Lloyd Garrison, the famous abolitionist in the, in the States, came and visited and praised. But Captain Dunlop saw the freed slaves as being a bulwark of loyalty to the British Empire because the British Empire uh, had abolished slavery and Canada had become a haven for them. And he was totally right because during the rebellion, to a man in the um, freedmen colonies, the uh, former uh, runaway slave colonies in Chatham, Wilberforce, they defend the British. For them, the Union Jack was the f uh, flag of liberty, not the Stars and Stripes. And the executive council was appointed by the governor himself. And the executive council basically governed, the, ignoring the wishes of the legislative assembly, which was elected, the executive council was where the power was until about 1841, 
when we get into that age-old debate that bores Canadian history students forever, when does Canada get responsible government? And, you know. So, so the so the um, this executive council that's uh, appointed by the governors. Did did the family compact have strong ties to Britain? Is that how they kept getting appointed? Well, I, I would imagine they were all loyal to a family. Um, and uh, they got appointed because of their position, their rank in mostly Toronto society or York society at the time. But even within the family compact, a new governor comes in and you get, uh, he appoints a different executive council. And so I didn't like these guys from the, the, the governor's former counselors, so I'm going to appoint my own executive counselor. So there's a lot of power invested in the lieutenant governor of Upper Canada, and he had the power to dismiss and hire the executive council. So if you were in the family compact and you wanted to advocate too strongly for certain reforms, you might find your spot at the table jeopardized. Okay. But they were always choosing from the same Yeah, practice. they were always basically. Now, I suppose, I, I can't think of anybody offhand, but I suppose that there might be an up-and-coming family that a new governor might want to appoint as a favorite or have on side. I'm sure that happened. I just can't think of an example right now. Okay. Well, and the, the election piece, too, like another important thing about the elections, like there's a, there's a great line in the play where um, uh, an observer of an election says, uh, you know, uh, and that was an election. How do I know? Because I lost two teeth in it. And yeah. part of what they, they talk about is, is the incredible violence that would also be accompanied by these, these elections. It was, it was not like you went behind a polite little piece of cardboard at the Holmesville you know, Community Center and wrote an X on something. It was, it was people having to stand up on a box in front of a room full of people and be heard. And it, it was also entirely possible that the person who was responsible for writing down uh, whether you said reform or Tory um, was a Tory and hated reformers and wasn't going to write down the fact that you said reform and might actually like you know, It's entirely possible that you could also uh, face reprisal and that you're also in a room full of people and having to make your way back home down down your you know your your little gravel road your little goat track whatever that is to try to get back to your house and you're gonna have to go through that same community it's incredible to put your neck out and, and stand for change was, I think, incredibly dangerous. Well, in 1835, our first election here, um, the electors came with a body of guys armed with clubs and spikes and sort of things. You had a body of people that would come and escort you. Funny enough, they had 100% voter turnout, unlike today. <laughs> they had to ride days from Brewster Mills or whatever to come into town. Voting was over a three- or four-day period, and uh, the violence, even after 1837-38, the election here in 1841, they had to call the army and a company of uh, infantry and an uh, uh, artillery detachment was sent to Godridge, and they ringed the uh, jail and uh, to break up a riot, and the sound of clicking musket um, kind of sobered everybody up. And they read the riot act from the cupola in the jail there. Which also just raises the stakes too. When you think about something then like uh, like a William Lyon Mackenzie, who is repeatedly reelected to 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 the the legislature, when that's happening, like um, the amount to which people are sticking their neck out to be able to support him, and he was in no way a subtle man, right? I mean, he was someone. Uh, uh, there's a. a I won't tell you the whole play, but there's another great line in the play where um, uh, it's actually Tiger Dunlop says to Mackenzie, you know, um, uh, you know, you you, can, you couldn't buy uh, you couldn't buy a cow without offending the herdsman, 
right? Mm -hmm. Is that the idea that, that Mackenzie was so um, raw of spirit, right? Um, and that he's often described as being um, uh, of temperament like a madman, right? That he, he is a, a wild figure. And for people to have supported him, I think, was, was uh, a, a risk in and of itself. And yet he had tremendous support. So, as a reformer. As a reformer. When it came as a, as a when it came to taking up arms, it was, I, I think, a little bit different. But so, yeah. we, so set the stage here. We've got we've got this family compact holding people down. There's there's talk about reform in the air, and then people have had enough. What was what was the last straw before we had this armed rebellion? What was the last straw? I don't know if you could point to a single trigger. I think it was things, perk and, and clearly it wasn't a very well-planned rebellion. It was almost like a spontaneous popular uprising because when they do, uh, Mackenzie uh, moves the date forward by a couple days of when he wants this, rebe this armed rebellion to take place. And um, one reformer, or one rebel takes about seven, 800 men up Young Street and they're met by a small picket of about 27 Tories, uh, probably right about where Maple Leaf Gardens is. And there's one volley fired by the loyalists that res responded by a ragged law. And apparently the people, the mob of our sort of armed men, uh, the rebels, they heard the shots, saw people dive for cover. They weren't necessarily uh, killed or wounded. And then they basically disperse. And it starts this uh, race, and they basically, their last of the rebel army collects itself at Montgomery's Tavern. I can't remember the date, a couple days later. December 7th. December 7th, there we go. <laughs> Collect at Montgomery's Tavern. And one of the things that's problematic for Mackenzie is that his, uh, his general, Colonel Anthony Van Eggman, who, by the way, wasn't a colonel, and he wasn't a Van Eggman. Most of the stuff about himself, he invented this. <laughs> aristocratic military lineage that um, that uh, all of it was he was outed in 1836 at the 1836 election as somebody who didn't have this great military record as being on both sides of the Napoleonic Wars and serving in Russia and he wasn't an aristocratic Van Eggman in fact we know what his birth name was he was probably the closest he got to the uh, armies and during the Napoleonic Wars that's believed that he was a sutler, somebody who sold goods to the army and, and, and he would have heard the stories from the men that fought in these battles that was in the Russian campaign and that sort of thing. But one of his biographers, uh, Major Needler, said it's an awful strange general that, um, that takes on the command of an army when he hasn't seen the troops or inspected them or drilled them. In fact, the first and only command he gave to the army was for it to disperse at Montgomery's Tavern. He arrives late. Basically, he which arrives... Bad, which probably wasn't bad advice. Yeah, which probably at that point when you've got a thousand loyalist militia and British regulars carrying an artillery piece on the Montgomery's Tavern and you've got some very frightened mob of undisciplined, ill-trained men with picks or, uh, pikes and the odd musket, that sort of thing. It probably wasn't bad advice. And apparently Mackenzie put a pistol to his head and said, command this army, something to that effect. And there wasn't much to command because the skirmish at Montgomery's Tavern uh, counts vary, but it didn't last very long. It was mostly a skirmish, and then you get this flight of rebels to the states, including Mackenzie. In terms of what that tinderbox moment was, like I don't know that there's a single event that you could point to, but I, I would say there there is, in addition to that 
incredible cronyism that they're witnessing is is also there is profound especially in this part of the world there's profound betrayal of uh, early settlers and homesteaders who've arrived out here and who who believe that they have been assured that if they can clear a certain amount of land that they will be able to make a valid claim on that land and instead what happens is they break their backs and they break their children's backs and they break their brothers and their fathers backs and they try to clear pieces of land they pull out stumps the size of buicks and they turn around at the end of it and they get told oh oh no we've actually given this piece of land to my brother or to my brother-in-law and we've actually we're going to take this parcel that you've now cleared that is now a fertile working farm and we're going to take this this log cabin that you've built on here with two stories and 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 you know the the first window in the neighborhood and we're going to take that and take this land and we're not going to recompense you because this doesn't belong to you. And there were some people who were meagerly recompensed, but for the most part, people had this land taken from them after they've, after they've done that. And I think when they talk about, like, part of why it's called, like, the play is called The Farmer's Revolt, it also speaks specifically to that very thing, is you've, you've incensed a, 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 a people who are hard scrabble trying to carve their way out of the utter wilderness, you know, that there's that wonderful thing. I think you wrote about it once, uh, David, was about how um, in this period a squirrel could climb a tree in Kingston and not have to get down till it got to Goderich. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. yeah, on the tree, yeah, the, yeah. the canopy, the canopy, right? So the, the density of the canopy, and if you're out there trying to, with no power tools, um, if you're lucky, you might have an oxen or two, but for the most part, you're doing all of this clearing, heavy bush clearing, by hand, uh, and then to have somebody show up uh, and tell you that, no, 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 this has been awarded to, you know, Lieutenant this or Colonel that, or we've decided we're going to give this parcel to, you know, I, the, the betrayal and, and the disenfranchisement, right? People lose everything that they have tried to build, not, and that's not even including the scope of what those people have gone through in, in coming over as immigrants from you know wherever they've been dispossessed of before that right I mean whether they, they whether they are part of the you know uh, people who are being uh, evicted out of out of farms in Ireland or whether you have uh, the Scottish settlers who are also you know essentially tr trying to start over knowing what kind of hard scrabble they're going to hit here only have it all taken away from them and then watch these abuses of power, right? I mean, it's, and as David pointed out too, at the same time to undergo that while the memory of the French Revolution and let them eat cake is still ringing in the back of your head. Like, it's not hard to see how that would rile. Yeah, well, and the Van Eggman family are classic. I mean, they were promised uh, money compensation, or John Galt did that. Money compensation if they built the here, uh, if they built the here and roads, schools and churches, and they were going to flood the here and tract with settlers. Well, that didn't happen, of course, because John Galt, John Galt, uh, he was fired. Um, that's another story. I think history's been pretty kind, but a lot of the to the misunderstanding. Uh, some of it was administrative. When you got your land grant in Montreal, you might have got to Godridge and find out that somebody else had already had it. 
Some of it was high-handedness by the Canada Company. Like Canada Company were withholding deeds to people who had cleared the land until the election was over because they thought they might vote against the Canada Company's interests. Mm. Now, the Canada so, Company was run by the Family Compact? Well, okay, there's another complex relationship. <laughs> yes, uh, 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 yes, it turned out that the Canada Company was run by the fa Family Compact. Although Thomas Mercer Jones kind of flirted with the reformers, but he ended up marrying John Strawn's daughter, Elizabeth Mary Strzok. And then so he had sort of his foot in both camps. And there's a thing with Tiger Dunlop, who were Tories, but in the Heron track, they were the outsiders. But the Canada Company, the Canada Company, they supported, no doubt, they supported the family compact. But interesting things emerge after the rebellion. For instance, the militia pay, the, the, the Heron Regiment, which was raised during the... Um, Rebellion in December 1837. Hundreds of men, when the, uh, when the call went out, hundreds of men gathered on the square here in Goddard. They formed companies under the leadership of the local gentry, like Captain Dunlop, the, the Dunlop brothers, and Captain Longworth, Captain Strawn, John Strawn's son, who was here at the time. They show up, but then there's an, and then uh, they're disbanded, but then they're called back together in January. They spend 90 days on the Sarnia frontier where they perform valuable service. Funny enough, Edward. Van Eggman, who was the son of Colonel Anthony Van Eggman, the chief rebel, the general rebel, or rebel general, his son is in charge of the wagon train of the Loyalist militia heading on the way to Sarnia. But uh, there is an issue with pay where Tiger Dunlop thought that Thomas Mercer Jones should compensate and the Canada Company should compensate until they could get money from the government, to, from the Crown, to pay for these men who had given up 90 days service. Thomas Mercer Jones said no. Uh, apparently, Tiger Dunlop called him a rebel or a traitor or something like that. And that I'm not 100% sure, but there is a duel fought between Dunlop and um, Thomas Mercer Jones on the river flats here. And I'm going to guess that was the origin of the duel. But yes, the Canada Company was in with the family compact, but through Captain Longworth and others, they had connections with the reformers. They were hedging their bets. Hmm. But who won the duel? Well, we don't know. You see, it's just a duel that everybody talked about. Well, clearly, nobody was injured, but that was the real purpose of all these duels. You were just to show up. You had your second, and if you show up, the idea was that uh, you misfired your pistol or fired in the ground or whatever. The idea was to show up. But we had a lot of duels down here on the, on the river flats. Yeah, and probably still do, yeah. So, um, so well, one thing ahead, in there, yeah. I was going to say too, a, another important piece is also the, the profiteering that was happening with some of the, the private land um, commission people too, that, that while there was the, 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 the land commission's office that was awarding people pieces of land, they were also taking a lot of that land and giving it to private uh, interests who then would turn around. And so where you might think that you're going to get, you, you, like one thing that's also spoken to in the play is the idea that uh, a settler could come in and, and be told for $20 you can get a 100-acre piece of land, but then they go and try to get it and they can't get that piece, but instead they're encountered, instead of going, instead of seeing an actual governmental representative, they're sent to somebody else who it actually turns out is a, is a private business person who is actually um, in bed with the commission and has been um, usually given some compensation to the commission and been given a whole bunch of deeds and they then turn around and take those $20 hundred acre plots and sell them for $200 uh, and then they profiteer off it right and that happened over and over and over so in this in this setting 
we have some people who decide to take up arms. Who are they? And in short, what do they do? Um, well, I mean, the, the big driver is William Lyon McKenzie. I mean, McKenzie is really, he becomes the, he is a highly charged, um, not only does he have this amazing um, uh, newspaper, uh, the, the advocate or the colonial advocate before that, um, which is an enormous voice of reform. On top of that, he um, is known as a great orator, too, and actually, you know, continually makes these uh, speeches and people rally behind him. And it's the thing I was kind of pointing at earlier about the popular support for the rebellion was also that while it may not have had a mass of people uh, in the thousands who joined with Mackenzie and his movement, there were certainly um, uh, hundreds who were willing to uh, take up arms and rise up against the government. And so while the, the, uh, the quantity of that rebellion may have been minimal, the qualitative element of it, the amount that people were actually uh, uh, riled up and dedicated to this cause and willing to die for it was significant. So hundreds of people oh, well. got, got together behind Mackenzie. Skip, skip. Um, yeah, hundreds of people, and that's how you number. I, I mean, it, it, it's interesting here that Captain or Colonel Van Eggman rode alone to Toronto, mm. but when the alarm went out, hundreds of men gathered on the square to take up arms against the rebellion. Um, after the, there was a raid here, and, and, and I haven't talked about that yet, but uh, in 1838, after the 1838 raid in June 1838, the raid on Goderich, and after the rebellion, the Lazar sisters, who wrote a really good book on the rebellion called Humors of 37, they said there were but two parties left in Huron County, uh, Tory and Tory. Um, <laughs> but there were clearly rebels in the area because when Colonel Van Eggman dies in jail and his body's brought back here to be buried in Eggmanville, his sons waved off a salute, a um, uh, uh, musket salute of rebels who wanted out of respect for the colonel uh, to fire a salute and they said no so there clearly were people who were rebel sympathizers here but by and large it was the loyalist militia here that turned out in the droves and and responded to the to the rebellion so we've got we've got these hundreds of of people descending on Toronto for this armed rebellion where are they coming from that's part of the challenge too so um, in theory, they're coming from all over, but w one of the challenges was also um, uh, that one of the leaders of the rebellion to um, uh, 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 Dr. Rolf, I don't know if blanked on his first name, he actually supposedly um, changes the date that the date was supposed to be December 7th, and he changes it to December 4th. And at this time, uh, you know, nobody can send text messages to each other. Yeah. And so um, the only way to convey this information is to send messengers running off basically through the woods to tell people who have been coordinating for months to arrive on December 7th. Yes, please. Do you know how long it would have taken, say, from Goderidge or Central Huron to get to Toronto from that time? I think it took Colonel Van, it was a couple days, they had to get him. They sent, I guess, yeah. I guess it was Dr. Rolf sent um, a messenger to get him, drag him out, and he said, well, it's uh, a little early. 
And uh, he was, when the rebellion on December 4th, when they go up Young Street, the first uh, exchange of gunfire, he was still on his way in here. He was here, he got here just in time for the Montgomery's tablo, uh, Tavern skirmish. So it would have been days. We're not talking like, there's no railroad that we're, we're I, 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 yeah, used to I think know it's that. three or four days yeah. by horseback, like from out here, from like, I think from Blythe, as I sort of looked at it this winter, was to go from like Blythe or Seaforth like to Toronto is like three or four days on horseback at that time. Yeah. yeah, and and there were other, like for instance, the other more serious gathering in Upper Canada was around the London districts, just south of London. It right. was the, it was called the Western Rising and Charles, Dr. Duncombe, who by the time, and this is how communications, he learned about the uh, disaster that, for the rebels and he takes off for the States before, and while his army is assembling south of London around Burford. He had three or 400 people assembling, waiting for his leadership. He was already in the States. <laughs> and uh, so he wasn't coming, but uh, a few regular companies from London did and they dispersed the rebels and they probably numbered about three or 400, which is a significant number of people, but it's not overwhelming. Mm. Well, an essential piece that we've totally left out, too, is um, uh, Lower Canada. Oh, yeah. That actually, just, just um, uh, a couple of months prior to the, the uprising, you actually have a parallel rebellion that had already begun in Lower Canada. Uh, so which is present-day Quebec. Yeah, so you'd had an uprising already happening there. And there's, there's speculation, too, that Mackenzie had a plan before December 7th, like actually back in, in November, to... Um, to basically to try to raid um, uh, the armory in Toronto and York at the time uh, to, to try to steal all the muskets because the army at that time was all in, uh, in Quebec, or in Lower Canada, trying to stop that rebellion there. Yeah, and certainly in Lower Canada, it's a much more serious rebellion where you get hundreds of soldiers battling uh, hundreds of, um, well, patriots as they were called then, but the church and the British authorities at the time uh, combined, and once again in, in Lower Canada, predominantly French Catholic, when they think of rebellion and revolution, they think of Americanism, they think of the reign of terror, and the church is very adamant that there won't, in fact, rebels weren't allowed to, be, uh, rebels who died in the 1837-38 rebellion weren't allowed to be buried on consecrated ground. So, yeah. But for Mackenzie, who is attempting to, to lead this uprising, I think hearing what was happening, and, and it, it seemed prophetic in a way, right? I mean, I think for him, it, it seemed like it was, it was clearly a harbinger of, of the opportunity that was there for him. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Took so, advantage of the opportunity. To, yeah. So they have, so the date has been changed to December 4th for this <laughs> uprising. I'm just trying to get this clear here. Right. December 4th. How many people arrive on December 4th? How many people didn't hear and are arriving on December 7th? Well, and lots. I mean, I mean like it, it, it ends up really being that there's no, like the, the army, the army, the militia that attempts to, the, the rebellion that attempts to arrive, it arrives in this scattershot way, right? They, they don't have an opportunity to, to really organize themselves. And, and then on top of that too, like for the most part, they are not a trained army in any way. I mean, they, they, are, they, are, they are farmers. So they didn't train beforehand. Well, uh, uh, I mean, they trained as best as they could, but without like military leadership, right? They're not, they're not they don't know, how, they don't, they've never encountered a drill sergeant in their lives. So one of the things they talk about, for instance, is like the um, 
the the first kind of wave of of rebel army they try to they try to form ranks and they try to march in line they try to um, advance and, and they they come up against the first uh, line and so the, the first row fired their muskets and then fell to the ground so the next row could fire theirs but the second row thought that the first row had all been shot dead, so they turn oh, no. and, and run away because they're because they don't know because they, because they're not trained. They're not trained soldiers. They don't know what they're encountering, right? And then on top of that too, like um, they they do not have a musket to a man as they're walking into this either, right? There's there's still plenty of them that that are walking into this, well, taking on um, a standing British army with artillery, and some of them have pitchforks in their hands. But so, that would, uh, can I just yeah. qualify, balance that out? I mean, <laughs> the Huron militia here, a lot of them didn't have muskets either. In fact, the blacksmith here, George Vivian, was uh, hammering out pikes and, and other, yeah. anything that could be used as weapons. It's almost like a feudal levy, mm. more than a trained militia, where you, everyone, when the bell rang here, every able-bodied male over the age of 16 who could carry a weapon showed up at the square and they're rummaging around and then basically they're just saying, okay, 50 people are in a company according to the rule book here. And they basically organize on that. And as Jill said, combat's a terrifying experience. And British line infantry in the 19th century, it took a lot of guts to stare another set of muzzles in the face and not move. Uh, well, the, uh, there's no that type of discipline. The only place that that exists is in the British Army, neither the Loyalist militia or the rebel militia would have had the type of training that would have no. allowed them to stand and slog it out on line-on-line infantry battles. Yeah, <laughs> and, and the reality is too, at that, at that point, warfare is not remotely what, I mean, we, we think of even the, the wars that we have uh, seen televised or watched in, in movies and stuff. I mean, you're talking about an era where uh, the, the reliability of a musket is so minimal. I mean, the, the reality is these are people who are, who are having to stab each other and, and, and fight it out fisticuffs. You know, it's, yeah, you actually it's had brutal, to, it's brutal. Yeah, you actually had to see, get right up close and see the person you were pulling the trigger on or get right up close and stab the person you were gonna kill and like pushing a button in the Indian Ocean and a cruise mm -hmm. missile flies 2,000 miles or something. Yeah. So, so these, this scattershot troop arrives in Toronto. What do they try to accomplish once they get there, what is their goal? I don't. I think that. It, it, go ahead. Well, they wanted the legislative <laughs> assembly. They wanted to take over yes. uh, mechanics yeah. of government. Basically, it was a it was an attempted coup. Really. So, so did they descend on the assembly? Yeah, they didn't get there. They and and yeah. the army. They didn't get to the army because they were. 27, a loyalist militia of 27, like I said, that would be the, the Young Street skirmish where about, like I said, the Maple Leaf Gardens. And kind of in it, they scattered because once again, they realized, oh my God, this is for real. And uh, um, a lot of them scattered. And, and this is where it's hard to know at Montgomery's Tavern. How many of those guys that marched up Young Street show up at Montgomery, have the determination to show up at Montgomery's Tavern? How many of those people at Montgomery's Tavern we're just coming in. They heard about the rebellion and we're coming in to assemble there. We, it, 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 it's hard to know. We do know that a lot of the hardcore rebels knew that they'd made a big mistake and very quickly the rebellion falls apart and a lot of them end up, you might have heard of the Navy Island thing in December 1830 where they set up the Republic of Canada and Lower Canada because they have a, an American type flag except it's got two stars in the upper quadrant and you get the international incident with the Carolina where um, the Carolina was an American ship. The cause was taken up in the states. 
a lot of Americans in the U.S. saw that this, what was happening in Upper Canada was striking a blow against British tyranny and remember it's the age of manifest destiny and, and there were um, large numbers of people who were willing to volunteer to come and liberate Canada from British rule and after the rebellion kind of shifts where it becomes a real fight for Canada because we have these uh, large numbers of invaders that come across the border. I think between here and York, I, um, there's a professor that wrote a book called The Patriots War about the 1838-39 aftermath where maybe, they start maybe, raiding here. Maybe let's not get ahead yeah, to okay. that part just yet. Right. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But a lot of the uh, they a lot of them leave, and a lot of them were Americans that marched up Young Street. A lot of them in Buffalo. It was really, really. I guess that's what I was trying. The point I was trying to make. A lot of them in, uh, people in Buffalo had heard what was happening in York and wanted to assemble. In fact. Uh, my old professor, Colin Reed, who wrote the uprising, uh, the Western uprising, he, he said he, pr he probably figures nearly half were uh, American-born of the rebels that marched up Young Street. Really? Yeah. So on, on December 4th, probably. Yeah, because it would have been a lot easier to get the word from Buffalo and have those people come up than it would be, say, to Huron County to have rebels pour in from here. Okay. I think importantly, too, like one of the McKenzie things that really strikes me is McKenzie was also a highly literate man. And one thing we talked about early in rehearsal was also the idea that you could be a highly, to be a highly literate person in that period, it was entirely possible that you could have read every single thing that was in print, right? That there is a very limited number of books that are in print in that period, and you could have read them all, right? Um, uh, and it's important to recognize too from Mackenzie, and I think not unlike, uh, and we talk about the echo chamber of information that each of us are living in right now, right? And, and the divisive politics that we're experiencing right now. And I think in many ways, Mackenzie became so insulated from divergent opinion that I don't know that when he marched on, on York that he really believed that they were going to have to, that there would be as much bloodshed. I think that in many ways he thought that he was walking in on a, on a vanguard of a change of power that was going to be largely um, uh, uh, anticipated and understood and that it was going that, that the, the list of demands that would be there that, that the shift towards responsible government away from what uh, the tyranny that he saw that it was going to be an inevitable thing. I think he in many ways believed himself to be part of inevitable change and didn't necessarily recognize the, the, the enormous resistance that would be there. Wow, a delusional politician. Yeah, who knew, eh? <laughs> well, it's fascinating. Well, and especially but you're like, right. I, yeah. You're absolutely right. I think that's bang on. Yeah, and on the other side of especially the French Revolution, like you look at things like, um, uh, like, like, like all the romantic poets, right? Like, like, like Shelley. Shelley is writing about the, the, the revolution, right? Shelley is writing about Napoleon. You also have, uh, I mean, Coleridge. You have, I mean, all these great poets that people are, 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 are reading, and certainly that Mackenzie would have been reading. All of them are writing about the, the, the glory of the revolution that has happened in France, right? Until the reign of terror. Until the reign of terror. And then people, like the, like, and you see even the romantics are divided up between the revolutionaries. And the Tories, like Jane Austen and the Bronte sisters and all that stuff are arch Tories. Mm -hmm. Even Coleridge and all those people, a lot of them were bristled at the reign of terror and Robespierre yeah. and the guillotine. But at first, I think, who was it that said that uh, uh, it was heaven to be born and, and, and that when they saw that the rights of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and, and they thought a brand new day had, much like intellectuals greeted the Russian Revolution in 1917 until... Uh, well, the, the Stalinist era and that sort of thing, 
people embraced the French Revolution and its ideals until the reign of terror between 1792 and 94, and they realized that maybe it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. But then there are right. other people who, who maintain that um, the French Revolutionary ideals, they might have gone off the rails during the French Revolution, but they were still good. Precisely. Okay. So, on December 4th, <laughs> on December 4th, rebels arrive in Toronto. Shots are fired. They scatter. They gather again on December 7th in a tavern. Well, I think it's sort of more like a sputtering. So, like, from December 4th right through to the 7th, there's a continual sputtering. And part of what happens is also that the, 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 the rebel forces, the, the ranks cannot actually grow because more people do arrive, but as people are arriving, others are fleeing, right? So you don't actually have a replenishing of the rebel ranks in any way. And at the same time, you do have a growing of the, the loyalist ranks that are there. And then on top, like there's some important pieces of the, like if you're talking about the actual warfare, like one of the most interesting pieces, I think, or, or the most, the closest thing that the rebels had to a strategic maneuver in it all was at one point they send off a, a separate force uh, some other people to go and burn the the the, the bridge, the Don, the the bridge over the Don Valley, um, and that they send enough people and and try to set fire to the bridge in such a way that it actually will draw off a significant number of the, of the British, and they do succeed at doing that, but it's not is not enough to remotely turn the tide, right? So they face and ultimately the leader of that will be will be hanged. So they face twenty seven people on the first day on December fourth. That's who they're up against, right? It's a militia of 27 people? Yeah, roughly. I mean, yeah. And that scatters them? The march up Young Street, yeah. So then on the 7th, who do they face when they're at, the, when they're at this bar? What's well, left of the rebels are, or the, the new rebels who have arrived or, or whoever's left are gathered at this bar? There's a few hundred of them at the bar? Gee, I don't, I, I, I'm not sure what the numbers were at Montgomery's Tavern. But it was basically an army in, 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 in name only. It was basically rabbles of people showing up there. Some might have taken part in the Young Street skirmish. Some were coming in. And I can't help but think a lot of people would have been on their way to Toronto to support the rebels with their pike or their musket mm -hmm. and realize the, re uh, the rebellion's been crushed and yeah. decided, you know, I'm going to go home. Because yeah. they, they didn't get the, the tweet. They didn't get the text that, you know, it's not a good idea to be caught in an act of treason or rebellion. In <laughs> Good idea. So. Yeah, yeah. Like there's and, certainly no roles. Like they don't. Yeah. They don't. They don't have like a, a like a. Um, uh, there's no. Nobody's taking attendance when they get there, right? They don't yeah. know who's there. So, so who and, shows up to finish them off? Is it another twenty-seven militia? Well, this time it's a thousand or eight hundred to a, a column of about eight. I, I think it was Lieutenant Colonel James Fitzgibbon of the War of eighteen twelve fame. The officer who Laura Secord gave her report about the Americans at Beaver Dam, he marches up onto uh, Montgomery's Tavern with maybe 800 to 1,000 militia, loyalist militia, and he's, got a can he's dragging a cannon with him. <laughs> so there's no chance. Yeah, that, yeah there's no chance. They've already, yeah. And, uh, and in the event, like I said, the skirmish that happens at Montgomery's Tavern is very brief, under an hour, maybe not even that. They still fight. Well, a few of them, like it, it's, it's a skirmish. It's, uh, it, there's not line-on-line -line fighting, but I, I guess there's shots exchanged because I think, uh, I, I think people were killed. They were at least wounded at Montgomery. And then they burned. They torched the tavern, of course. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that was the end of the rebellion. Yeah, they're scattering. And, and they, you know, they're tracing down for the next couple of days and maybe weeks. They're trying to track down rebels. 
like in the London district, they're trying to track down uh, some of um, uh, Colonel Duncombe or Captain Duncombe's people in Toronto. They're trying to track down. They really, when they get Van Eggman, they really don't know if this is the guy that's the rebel general. They had to have, um, uh, uh, they brought him into a dying rebel and asked him to identify Colonel Van Eggman, and he did on his deathbed, identified him as the rebel general. Van Eggman was more than willing to give up his title and name again. <laughs> yeah, well, he, um, he, he died in uh, a couple weeks later, a sick, very tired, probably humiliated old man. In, yeah. in prison. Yeah, in prison, a couple weeks, just a couple weeks after the rebellion. There's no doubt, though, that he probably would have been dangling at the end of a rope very shortly anyway. Yeah. And they, they, end up, they end up hanging 25 rebels. You know, I think I think there's there's 250 who are incarcerated uh, in, between Fort Henry and in, and in, in Toronto, and there's there's 25 that are hung, and then of the of the lower we were just looking at this today in rehearsal actually, and, the, and in Lower Canada they hung 12. Wow. They hanged yeah. 12. They hanged. Now that wow. 25 that they hanged does that does that include the ones like the Americans like at Prescott at the Battle of the Windmill? That I don't know. And yeah, I, they hanged about three or four in London, at the uh, at the uh, county courthouse in London, and some they sent to Australia, Van Diemen's Land. Over almost yeah. two hundred, they sent to Van Diemen's Land and Lower and Upper Canada, and at least one, William Jackman, they uh, from London was exiled to West Wawanosh. <laughs> That'll learn him. That'll learn him. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, his great-great-grandson, <laughs> ironically, so yeah, his great-great-grandson became Hal Jackman, who was the Queen's representative in Ontario in the early 1990s. So, so, so that's, that's the rebellion in a nutshell, I guess. Um, Gil, does anybody have any questions specifically about the events? So, uh, yeah, go ahead. So, Jim and, and Gil, thank you. Well, drink is drink is a major factor in this whole period. I mean, like uh, on several levels. So one, like you don't you don't have a reliable source of clean drinking water of any kind for anybody at this point in time, really, and that's that's major. So it means that every single family, uh, all people are, are 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 drinking all day, right? Like uh, it's a common thing for for uh, instance, especially in towns for children to be sent to go and get the daily bucket of beer for the family, right? Because everybody is drinking all of the time. And, and, um, and yeah, the, 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 the scale of the whiskey drinking, well, I mean, here in, in, this, in this museum, too, are uh, the, those Tiger Dunlop's uh, 12 Apostles, right? Does everybody know about his 12 Apostles? Yeah, believe the nodding. So, I mean, they've got them here. I mean, it's, it's, it's 11 bottles of whiskey and one bottle of water that he called Judas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is incredible. And, yeah, the scope of the drinking that everybody was doing in that period. I mean, and especially also traveling in the winter when you're drunk is also something that was, like, the whole, uh, I mean, when they talk about things like falling off the wagon, Right, I mean that 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 had at one time a literal meaning was <laughs> you were so drunk you fell off the wagon. <laughs> yeah. No, oh, absolutely. But the other social oh. factors. 
Well, sure. And, and Gil touched the <laughs> the whiskey drinking, which was just legend. Alcoholism or alcohol as a problem doesn't begin until about the Industrial Revolution when people switch from horse-drawn plows and to automation. It's not until really the, 20, uh, the late 19th century that people see alcoholism or what we would consider drunkenness as a huge problem. But to your religious question, you know, that's important. Uh, that was huge in this area. Like the divisions, not just between Catholic and Protestant, but between, um, um, say, the Church of Scotland and the Church of England against the Methodists. Methodism is spreading through Upper Canada like wildfire. There's five types of Methodist church here, and it's got the taint of Americanism. And in fact, in the Canada, in this area, there wasn't, uh, there was a real uh, push to get an Anglican, a Church of England, because almost all these people were Church of England when they came, but when a few years, they're Methodists. And the Methodist church just grows in leaps and bounds, and the Canada Company actually tried to kick or keep a Methodist circuit rider out of the area because he was spreading all these weird religious doctrines, evangelical-type doctrines, which were just totally flew in the face of the established churches. And, and as the denominational loyalties and the domina denominational tensions had a huge impact on everything, politics, who you hung out with, who you married, what school you went to, it was just... It was, it was just tremendous. Well, and then the complication of marriage itself, I mean, just in terms of, of the, the scarcity of women in the colony, too. I mean, this was, this was a huge point for um, a lot of the people uh, uh, on all sides, uh, the reformers as well as the Tories, was people, um, I mean, it was like an election platform. There's, there's actually a, a beautiful uh, section of a, a, a speech that Sir Francis Bondhead gives uh, in the show, and, and um, it's a, a transcript from Election Day, and one of the things he says is, is men, uh, women and money is what you want. And if you, essentially, if you elect me, I will make sure that there are, are more women in this colony, right? Like, because you, you, and on top of that, too, you had these, um, I mean, the, the mail order brides that were happening in that period, too. I mean, you had um, uh, farmers who were, you know, sending away, essentially, for um, uh, young women uh, to, and not just young women, um, to come to the colony to be able to marry them. And, and, and a lot of that was happening too. You had people who were marrying um, uh, you know, their, their, their mail-order bride within weeks of their arrival in, in the colony, having uh, never met, having never, never met each other's families, having absolutely no relationship of any kind. You'd, you'd arrive, they'd, they'd you know, pick you up from where, where the wagon had dropped you off, and, and you know, you'd, you'd go to, to the church and get married within a, a, a matter of days. And, and, and sight and they, unseen yeah and they they had to it was just uh procreating the species because about one in, it's estimated about one in three people died on the way over here and that sort of thing and you had to uh, i mean people didn't marry for love or romance that's an upper middle class type notion they married because of economic necessity and remember there's no health care welfare you had to have kids because you looked after the kids, and as you 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 bred your workforce, and as you aged, your kids would have uh, would marry, and you'd hope they looked after you in old age, and it just kind of on and on and went. You you had to marry, you had to procreate, and um, which makes life here. And if a husband or wife died, they were it was a real push on to marry somebody really really quickly. Like if you look at old censuses and that sort of mm -hmm. thing, you see how quickly families blend and that sort of thing. So, yes. I have a question about the, the date they had this uprising. I mean, I think back to what it was 
just like in Henry County even 50 years ago in December. What kind of judgment Absolutely. Like, I mean, it, it, it was a spontaneous, not very well thought out. Gil's absolutely right. Mackenzie is brilliant. I think he boasts that he reads, like, a, when he was a kid, he read a book a day or something like that. Like, I mean, he just is a voracious reader, absorbed everything. The one thing he wasn't very good at was planning military campaigns. <laughs> and then the other piece, too, like, the, the, the one practical part of it would be if, if you are relying on, a, on an army that is mostly composed of farmers, you sure as hell can't have your uprising in April or May, or you can't, can't have it in September or October, or, I mean, you've got a limited scope July. of what, you know, July wouldn't be so bad, but yeah, you've got a, a limited number of uh, opportunities there in the year. Yeah, good point. So, yes? Yeah. What, what's prevented the United States from uh, getting involved in this? You mentioned Manifest Destiny, and that, that was a concern. I mean, that was a concern even after the American Civil War, uh, that uh, at that point they could they would move in. What stopped them, and why wouldn't the rebels, in effect, have sent out feelers to the Americans, who would, they probably would have been willing to go to yes, uh, all right. Well, actually, the rebels did put out feelers to the Americans. A lot of Americans responded to the call. Like, I mean, I think rebels like Charles Duncombe went and made speeches, especially along the Great Lakes City, and it became kind of like a cause celeb. Is that collusion? The, uh, oh, for sure. Like, I mean, yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, they put out a call. They did exactly that, and they got a response in the spring of 1838 from a lot of Americans. But at the official level, cooler heads prevailed. And at that time, in 1836, Martin Van Buren, I think, was president, and the United States really didn't want to take on the British Empire, even then. Although, there's always the problem of defending Upper Canada for the British military planners. The, the great Duke of Wellington called Canada all frontier and nothing else. He had a real keen interest in the 1830s, right until he died, he was very emotional about Canada and protecting Canada from American republicanism. He's really interested in Canadian defense matters, but he realizes it's a nightmare. On the other hand, for the Americans, going to war with an entity like the British Empire, America was still feeling its wings internationally sort of thing. They still didn't see themselves as a superpower, and they weren't quite prepared at the official level to take on the British Empire. In fact, uh, President Van Buren makes it very clear that he wasn't going to uh, tolerate acts of piracy or invasion of Upper Canada because that's exactly what we get in the spring of 1838 uh, until, well, the first raid in 1838. Now can I talk about that? Yeah. yeah. Okay, the first raid on Upper Canada is right here in Goderidge on June 26, 1838. Uh, Hunter's Lodges, they were called, which were kind of like Masonic in kind of their ritual and handshakes and grips and words. They, they formed in, during the winter of 1837-38 after the hanging of Matthews and Blount? Yeah, Matthews and, and Blount, Blount, Seven and Blount, yeah. In April, two. they become like... Two yeah, of the people involved in the rebellion. Um, uh, they become martyrs to like Canadian liberty, and a lot of Americans join these hunters' lodges. And I think between here and York, in the summer of 1838, starting here in Goderidge, there's about 14 incursions of Americans onto Canadian soil. The last and most serious one was in Prescott in November 1838. It becomes known as the Battle of the Windmill, where dozens of American they called the windmill the Alamo of the North. And um, they, uh, there, there is a really serious um, 
more than the skirmish, it was a siege that lasted a couple of days, the stone windmill up at Prescott. I think about 50 Americans died and maybe a dozen British regular troops and Canadian militia were killed in the Battle of the Siege when they finally surrender, about 150 rebels surrender, and then after that, uh, there's no more of those type of cross-border incursions. But the first one here, uh, he was Colonel John Vreeland steamed in here about 36. Um, here in Goddard. Here in Goddard, yes. Yeah, the only time uh, um, here in county soil has been violated by a foreign invader, at least in the European era, <laughs> since 1827, was when the Hunter's Lodges, in, in, uh, uh, they sacked. The, now, some of them on board the uh, boat that landed with Colonel Reeland might have really thought that they were striking a blow against British liberty, or uh, against British tyranny, but most of them seemed bent on plunder because they carted off the stores in the Canada Company Wharf. They were caught a couple days later on Walpole Island in an aborted raid on the trading posts there. An American revenue cutter uh, offered, they said, you could take your chances with the natives, the Ojibwa down on Walpole Island, who were very upset with them, most upset, or you can clamber aboard our revenue cutter and we're going to take you. And he was charged, I think, with piracy. And he was, Colonel Vreeland was sentenced to a year in jail and a couple of his other thugs. A lot of them just kind of melted away or escaped. It's a good thing they were caught in the States because I can, uh, if they were caught on British soil, the, the penalty for piracy was, you know, death by hanging. So, so, so this gives us an idea of what happened in the rebellion. Gil, how does the play tackle this? What does the play look like? This is a great question. So one of the things that I talked about um, on our very first day of rehearsal was actually the idea that I don't think that this play, 1837, The Farmer's Revolt, is really um, uh, a history play. I think that what it is is a, is a mythology. And um, one of the things that um, uh, Paul Thompson, who was one of the creators of the show, and a, a lot of you will be familiar with his work, one of the things that Paul has talked extensively about was the idea that when they were first creating uh, shows like The Farm Show and 1837 and um, The Duke of Boris, a bunch of the early, early shows that, that helped to inspire the creation of the Blythe Festival itself, that at that time, uh, what they were setting out consciously to do was to try to create a Canadian mythology, that we, that we need myths, that myths are what underpin a culture and a society, and that they turned to this subject matter of 1837 in an effort to uh, try to create a, a Canadian mythology. So um, there are, uh, of course, there are uh, uh, wild inaccuracies, or there are, there are, um, and, and I would say that even in the production itself and, and what we're doing, there, there's a lot of stuff that we're doing that is very uh, anachronistic, right? You're not going to go and see a show that has um, uh, beautiful, perfect period costumes, that has like uh, highly detailed uh, period uh, have props and sets, and um, this is very much a show that, that recognizes that it was built um, uh, as part of a, um, a theater movement, really, a, a movement of storytelling and a movement of an attempt to try to say that, especially coming out of when the play was initially created, 1972, um, and I don't know if everybody in this room knows this, but uh, part of the play was actually written uh, at Blythe Festival uh, in, in the theater itself. And actually at the time, 
the building, the theater in Blythe, um, was all but condemned, and you actually weren't allowed to go upstairs. You could go down in the lower hall, but no one was allowed to be upstairs, and it was because uh, the roof was caving in. And the actors um, and Rick Salutin and the whole gang arrived in Blythe, and they uh, wanted to use the theater to write, and they were told, uh, you can't. And they actually um, had to sign waivers with the township that if the roof fell on their head, they wouldn't sue them. Um, and so that's how they got permission to use the theater to be able to work on this project. And, uh, but what they were really attempting to do was to say, um, at that point in time, like looking at theater across this country, they were looking at things like of what was happening at the Stratford Festival, and they were looking at things like what was happening at the Shaw Festival, mm -hmm. and they were saying, well, hang on a second, why do we have um, uh, all these Canadians who are going to see plays that are about um, uh, dead British kings and queens? And why are we, why, why are we engaging in uh, this kind of a relationship to our history? Why are we not actually attempting to tell some of the stories from our, 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 our own trajectory? And so that, in many ways, was what underpinned the creation of the play in the first place, or the inspiration for it. And so the, and, and, and history, I mean, and, and David is very familiar with this too, is the idea that also um, history, as much as it points us at things, there, there is also so much that is unknowable about it. And that in, in reality, there can never be a, a, a pure history. There's no such thing, right? There's only historiography, right? You could only ever read what is written about history. You can't ever read history. History itself doesn't exist. There's only what people think about it and what people have written about it. And in that same way, this play, uh, 1837, The Farmer's Revolt, is really a play that is about um, uh, this place, it's about the, the there, there's a, a, some powerful scenes in there, for instance, like um, uh, Colonel Van Egmond appears in the show, uh, as does um, Tiger Dunlop is in the show. I mean, obviously, William Lyon McKenzie is in the show, and, and an incredible turn, too, by um, a, a young performer uh, who's with us this year named Matthew Jin, who's absolutely brilliant as McKenzie. Um, the, the, the show is, is, is really quite... Um, an extraordinary uh, testament to the importance of telling our own stories. And I think that, that that's woven all through it. Um, uh, uh, and on top of that, the, the idea that, um, like as we were pointing to here, the, the, the facts of the rebellion occupy um, a degree of the story, but even as, as, as David was pointing out, like this, the social events, like for instance, in, in the first act, there's a lot of stuff that happens that is not directly seemingly tied to the rebellion. So things like there is um, a, a mail order bride scene. Um, where there is a, a young man who goes to pick up the, the, the woman he's sent away for. Um, and there's also, uh, you know, there's, there's a scene of, for instance, um, uh, a, a British uh, high-class um, diarist who has arrived and, and she's uh, in, in mid-transit from uh, traveling from uh, uh, Toronto to uh, Niagara-on-the-Lake and she's, she's writing in her diary about the experience that she's had on, um, and it points to things like Susanna Moody and roughing it in the bush and stuff like that. Um, and so there's all of these little pieces that set up the world that we are living in um, in advance of the rebellion itself. Uh, and, and I would say like um, 
it's fascinating being in the room uh, with these brilliant, uh, incredible actors. There's another one of our actors who's here tonight, actually, uh, Omar Alex Khan over there in the corner, um, uh, who may have an incredible Scottish accent, it turns out. Um, but um, <laughs> they together, they're so compelling. And I have to tell you, like, uh, Every, every single day, there's, there's, a, there's a triumphant speech uh, near the end of Act One where Mackenzie um, calls for people to uh, come up and, and, and sign, their, sign their names uh, to, to uh, commit to uh, rise up against the government. And, um, and every day, I'm, I'm pretty much ready to get up out of my chair and go and <laughs> sign up with him. It's really quite extraordinary. But um, I would say that the, the, the play itself is, is also about, um, there's, a, there's a, I can't give away the, the final line. I can't give away the final line, can I, Omar? No, no please I can't. don't. The, the, the final line, I think, is one of the greatest lines in, in, um, in, in Canadian theater. It's, 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 it's a line that actually, um, uh, uh, when you've got it at home in print, if you go home and read that final line, it's, it's an incredible final line. And I think it speaks to the great project. Like, while, while Mackenzie is, is definitely a radical reformer, um, for all of us, the society that we live in today is wildly more liberal than what even he was proposing, right? I mean, to, 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 to consider that somehow um, he would be viewed as, as this, this um, uh, radical reformer who was, uh, you know, involved in this uprising. Like a lot of the things that we take for granted in our government today are things that he was um, was willing to take up arms and fight for, uh, you know, almost 200 years ago. I think that's a fair statement, isn't it, David? Yeah. <laughs> and it's amazing well, what hasn't changed, though. But yeah, 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 yeah. Very, very good. Yeah, very good. Very well stated. So, uh, yes. Family compact. Family compact. Yeah, is it still in practice today. Well, not those people. But if you read Peter C. Newman's book, the the what is it called? The establishment. Yes. So I mean, uh, uh, yeah, the Canadian establishment. That's it's still maybe not run out of Montreal anymore or Westmount, but a lot of people would argue there's still about 250 families in Canada that still control a lot of the, you know, have a lot of political and economic clout. Well, and, and, and the, the wild abuses of power that we're witnessing, I mean, that, that continue to happen, too. I mean, uh, um, uh, you know, even looking at something like what's happening in, in, um, in the states right now, too. I mean, how can you not look at the states? Also, like something like Scott Pruitt, somebody like that, who just, you know, stuffing his pockets, lining his pockets day after day after day. And, and everybody sort of turns a blind eye while the agenda is being served until it finally reaches a point of actual tremendous embarrassment. But the idea of, of, of politicians this uh, viciously profiteering, I mean, it's, it's right at, the, it's right at the, 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 the fore of the zeitgeist right now, for sure. You know, this, um, yeah. Do you still want to get involved in politics? <laughs> well, money like that on the table, but yeah. Uh, yeah. You bet. But it's, it, I, I will have to say defend politicians and that sort of thing. It's a lot more difficult to work your way into those positions. Uh, 
Especially at the municipal level. <laughs> I forgot in my introduction to say that David has been a councillor for Goddard for a long time and is now running for mayor. I, I'm not a councillor now. No. Uh, there's a wonderful line in the play, too, where um, actually Van Eggman says to Tiger Dunlop, he, he complains about the mushroom aristocrats and the idea that they just keep like popping up, right? They just keep coming up through the soil, these mushroom aristocrats. And I think that that's a big part of what they're dealing with in that period. And also the, the tremendous, I mean, we haven't spoken about this at all either, like the, the tremendous poverty that people are living in in this part of the world at that point in time, right? I mean, they're, they're living in incredible poverty. And at the same time, what, I mean, again, the abuses of power at the family compact, like you have, um, uh, is it the Jarvis brothers? I think it's the Jarvis brothers who, I mean, are, are running up insane expenses you know they're 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 charging um to the government things like you know they buy themselves uh, shimmering velvet curtains that they you know charge to the government they they buy themselves the finest you know um uh what's beth what's the name of that the, the um uh at the ago the first brick brick house oh, the grange, the grange the yeah the which was the boltons yeah yeah. So uh, one of the Bolton sons, who was part of the family compact, built in, uh, in Upper Canada at the time, in, in Toronto, built uh, what's now attached to the AGO, um, the, the first brick house uh, in Upper Canada at the time. And, and I mean, you, you, you literally have people living I mean, in, in, in such extreme poverty trying to eke out any kind of sustenance farming to be able to keep themselves alive and then at the same time you have a, a kind of uh, you do have a, a body that is in control of power and who are living lavishly oh yes a couple of points uh, <laughs> when the militia uh, supposedly were headed down to the border to keep Mackenzie from getting back Mm. They supposedly in this area stopped at every farm and had the head of the household uh, swear his allegiance to the crown. And when they were done, there were no dissenters. But Eggman was the only rebel in our county. Who, who wouldn't well, swear what allegiance? What would you do if the militia came into your yard? I guess you'd say... <laughs> <laughs> now the other point... Apparently they were watching for Mackenzie trying to get back into the state. And there was a rumor that he hid out up on the 16th concession in Goddard Township. Now, nothing I've ever found to substantiate that, but one of the guys that escaped with him to the states was named William Hall. And in 1845, he was granted amnesty along with all the rest of the rebels. He comes back over here with a barge or a raft of lumber north of Bayfield, builds a big house, buys three farms from Malcolm Cameron, and establishes a mill, a woolen mill down in the, in the ravine, water powered, and by the time they formed the Bayfield Cemetery Company, he's got the biggest number of shares in it. Like he didn't get involved in politics, but he came back to that particular spot 
with this age. Hmm. And we, I've been digging into this because we ended up buying one of those farms in 1979. But can't verify any of it. Interesting. Ever, anybody ever hear of the hiding out in Godric Township? Well, no, I, I think his movements, are, after he escapes to the United States, his movements are pretty well documented because he's constantly... But before going to the United States, on his way to the United States. What, what year was this, Phil? Well, you said 1845? He came back in 1845. Well, William Hall did, but Mackenzie's still in the States until 1849 when he's given a, a pardon. Yeah, yeah, but on his way running away from the rebellion... Yeah. To the United States? You no, I, I, I. Well, they were on an island. Yeah, they were on Navy Island, and I think he went to Buffalo and he gave speech. Mackenzie did. Yeah. I don't know about William Hall, but Mackenzie gave speeches, and I think his movements and where he was mm -hmm. are, are pretty well known. There wouldn't be any reason for him to have to come up here, and it'd be an awfully dangerous, because, like I said, this is devoutly loyal territory. It would awfully, it'd be awfully dangerous for Mackenzie to try to hide out even in a remote place like Huron County, just because the loyalties were so strong at that time. I mean, it's an interesting story, and I'd be interested if there is anything more than... And it might be a great myth that we can work <laughs> into the, the yeah. mythology, the local mythology, yeah. so... Uh, so um, but apparently, even the militia didn't find any sympathizers besides I'm sure, like, I hadn't heard that they went and asked for a loyalty oath, but it doesn't surprise me. And of course, as you know, like, as you said, that uh, it'd be awfully dangerous not to swear that loyalty oath. Because the theory was that all these participants, after the first big kerfuffle, headed for home, pretended they were there the whole time. Good advice. Yeah, yeah or, or, or some of them also doubled back and joined up with the ranks who were searching too. Instances of that as well. So, so we've we've covered what happened at the rebellion, what what the play might look like. Um, just finally, before we're done here, we're done very soon. Um, why is this play relevant today? I'll ask both of you. I'll let you answer that for <laughs> I mean, I think you had a good answer for yeah, that. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean there, there's uh, so many reasons. Um, uh, wow. Well, for one, I mean, I would point to uh, one of my favorite um, uh, quotes about a play. Um, uh, there's a wonderful writer uh, named David Mamet. And actually, I keep crediting it to Mamet, though I, I haven't been able to find out where he actually wrote it. But um, is that any play that can be described in one minute should be one minute long. <laughs> um, uh, this is a very complex play. It's 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 got all, all kinds of um, uh, uh, wildness of, of of storytelling. There's there's a lot of it, um, especially in the first act, um, is very very funny, uh, and the second act things really turn on a dime. Uh, but I would say that it's very much a play about um, idealism and a play about. Um, uh, speaking, uh, attempting to speak truth to power. And I think that the era that we are living in right at the moment, we're, we're actually seeing a, a, a tremendous necessity for that kind of, of rallying of, of, of spirit and voice um, uh, that we need to be able to be um, 
you know, it's, it's that fascinating, I think one of the things that, that Mackenzie was so essential um, in inspiring in people was the necessity to criticize the government that they were living under, which is something that we all need to be doing, uh, uh, regardless of whether there are people we voted for or people we didn't vote for. We need to be critical of our governments. I mean, how else can we possibly grow as a society? That's, that's what we need. Right, we all need, um, uh, in the same way that, like, uh, you know, every every play that goes up at the theater, um, uh, I get lots of letters from people who write me letters about things they loved and things they didn't, um, and then I also get, you know, reviewers who write pieces about uh, what's going, what you know, what they think of the shows, and 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 these kinds of of criticisms are the things that allow the theater to grow. They're actually the things that allow me to grow as an artist. They're the things that allow for uh, us to, to better learn who our audience is and what our audience is interested in and what our audience's needs are. And I think in, in many ways, um, you know, governments need to be held accountable in the same way. You know, it's, it's incredibly dangerous to live in a society where, uh, where people don't feel they have a voice. And I think that that's more so than anything what Mackenzie really was attempting to, to to rally people around was the necessity to, to try to seize some power for, uh, for people who were being trampled and ignored. And, uh, you know, his tactics, uh, I would not propose that uh, bloodshed is ever an appropriate political response. Um, at the same time, I would say that this is very much a play that is relevant to us because a, we're Canadian, and this is a very important Canadian story, um, uh, regardless of, of, of its outcome. Uh, and I would also say that we are living in volatile political times um, uh, all over the world right now. And I think it's important for uh, us to recognize, too, and I think one of the things Mackenzie speaks to in the play so um, articulately is also that um, as much as we would love it to be true, there is no such thing as an apolitical position, right? You, 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 cannot, you cannot choose to not be a political person. That's not, that's not an opportunity that any of us have. If you're, if you're not engaged in politics, you are still engaged in politics. You're just part of that, that, that silent, um, uh, uh, that, that part of that, that, that silent, uh, immobile uh, uh, voice. But all, all, you're still being counted, right? We, we all of us um, are, are, have to be a part of the, of the political landscape that we, um, that we live in, and it, it's not actually a choice that we have. We, we have to be, and we are, uh, whether we like it or not. And I think that part of what Mackenzie was attempting to do, and part of what this play also tries to do, is to say, um, um, make choices and be conscious and try to be as awake as we can in the times in which we're living. And that's pretty relevant, when you say? I think so. <laughs> Well, everything that Gil said, I agree with, but it's kind of relevant for one reason, the, the idea of truth to power, but we're living in an age of populism now, hmm. and we're on the verge of these kind of like electoral revolutions, like the Brexit vote, the, uh, the, the Trump presidency, and even on a local level, a lot of people would argue that uh, the election of uh, Mr. Ford as premier is part of that populist swing, and not always are populist revolutions, are they clean, or they're messy, or they seem they're... And this is another example of like the McKinsey Rebellion where looking back from my perspective, I'm kind of glad it didn't succeed. 
But I, I, I like the idea that somebody's dredging up this event, an incredibly important watershed event in our history, and putting it on display for people to talk about. Because one of the things I fear we've lost in the 21st century is something that when the play was written in the 1970s was vitally important. I remember going to school in the 1970s and we were in this constant search for a national identity, mm. a distinct national identity. And that lasted probably from about the flag debate until about I started coming into teaching. Now we don't even look at that anymore. We don't have seen, we, we, we've kind of lost our, or we're losing our roots of who, what it meant to be a Canadian at one time and some of the important uh, uh, and so I don't even think they study the Mackenzie Revolt in grade seven and eight social sciences anymore. It's a lot of other stuff. So it's really important that we kind of have, and it, I'm really glad that Gil is able to put on a play like this to put, as I said, to put on display. And incredibly, and, and the Blythe Festival Theater does a great job of, of trying to holding up a mirror to who we are, not just in 1837, 38, but who we are today and what we are now. And I think the play kind of, even though it's about something that happened 180 years ago, and um, it reflects kind of like a late 20th century perspective, it's kind of really important that we come out after we see it and think, gee, how does this relate to the recent elections in the States, Great Britain, or here? But anyway, I'm looking forward to the play. And can hardly wait. Thank you. And so, Gil, when does the play open? When can we go see it? The play opens August, well, uh, first preview is August 1st, um, and then the play actually opens August 3rd. And it runs all the way until September 15th. Um, uh, and something I would point out to that, too, something we've been trying to do, and if any of you, um, I know there's some teachers and former teachers in this crowd, um, I've been trying to get the old Avon Maitland School Board to pay attention and send some students to come and see this thing, and so far I've not had a single school group bite into that amazing opportunity. So if you have any way of uh, turning the thumb screws at the old Board of Ed, please do so. Thank you. Okay. So, on, on on, on behalf of uh, on behalf of the uh, museum and uh, the Blythe Festival, I'd like to thank you all for coming tonight. Thank you very much. It, discussions like this are great and important for us. Uh, and I'd like to thank Gil and David for joining us tonight. Can we give them a round of applause? <laughs> discussion about 1837, the Farmers' Revolt in Blythe, Ontario. Next time, a conversation with designer Siobhan Sleeth. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good, with voiceover by Gabriel Cromley. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theatre design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at TheTitleBoxCA and on Facebook.com slash Podcast. You can send comments and requests by email to TheTitleBlock at gmail.com. Now, don't forget that if you like the show, please support us on Patreon.com. And I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on the Title Block. <laughs>